On Saturday, December 17th, 1927, Perry Parker sat tensely in his parked car at Fifth and Manhattan Place in central Los Angeles. His daughter, 12-year-old Marion Parker, had been kidnapped two days earlier by a mysterious criminal who called himself the Fox. At around 8.15 p.m., a dark Ford pulled next to Perry Parker. The man in the car had a kerchief around his face so that his features could not be seen. He pointed a shotgun into Parker's car. He then asked for the ransom money he had demanded. Where's Marion? Parker asked. Right here, the kidnapper said. She's asleep. The man lifted something in the passenger seat, and Parker momentarily saw the face of his child. Parker leaned out of the car and gave the man $1,500. The kidnapper told him to wait a minute, and he drove slowly down the street to 432 Manhattan Place. There, he pushed a bundle out of the passenger door and then sped off into the black night. Parker rushed to the bundle, where he was met with a scene of unimaginable horror. His daughter, Marion, was dead, her body wrapped in a blanket. Her eyes had been crudely sewn open to give the appearance of life. To make matters more horrific, when her father removed the blanket, he discovered that his daughter's limbs and hips had been hacked off her little body. A maniac was loose on the streets of Los Angeles. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. It all seemed like a bad dream. Thursday, December 15th, 1926, was a relaxed pre-vacation day at Mount Vernon Middle School in Mid-City, L.A., a day filled with holiday parties and Christmas programs. At around 12.30 p.m., a good-looking young man with dark, oily hair and a, quote, well-educated air strolled into the school office. He introduced himself as Mr. Cooper and said that he worked for the First National Bank downtown. Perry Parker, the chief clerk of the bank, had been in a serious auto accident. Parker was asking for his younger daughter, and he had been sent to fetch her. At first, the secretary and teacher in the front office were confused. Parker had two children at school, 12-year-old twin girls named Marjorie and Marion. Why would he specify that he wanted the younger of the two twins? Cooper was quiet and courteous and said the women were more than welcome to call the bank. They declined and pulled an excited Marion, the youngest twin, out of her classroom's Christmas celebration. Her father, Perry, later recalled, Marion was just a healthy, normal sort of child, what some might call tomboyish. She was full of life and play all the time. The child had her own mind, too, 
but her two main attractions seemed always to be her parents and her schoolwork. Although she did not know Mr. Cooper, Marion was eager to comfort her father. In an act unthinkable today, school secretary Naomi Britton let her go with the stranger. Marion got into the young man's dark Ford and vanished into the sunshine of a California December. Later that day, Marjorie came home from school alone, unaware of where her sister had gone. Her mother, Geraldine, began to fret, wondering where Marion was. When Perry Parker got home, he opened a telegram that had been sent to him. Do positively nothing till you receive special delivery letter. Signed, Marion Parker. Another telegram arrived shortly thereafter. It read, Interference with my plans, dangerous. Signed, George Fox. The family called the police. Soon, a long letter arrived. Headlined was the word death, scrolled across the top of the page. The missive stated, Use good judgment. You are the loser. It instructed Parker to obtain 75 $20 gold certificates a relatively paltry sum overall, and to leave out the police and detectives. Failure to comply would mean, quote, no one will ever see the girl again except the angels in heaven, unquote. It went on. Fox is my name. Very sly, you know. Set no traps. I'll watch for them. Get this straight. Remember that life hangs by a thread and I have a Gillette razor ready and able to handle the situation. Do you want the girl or the $75, $20 gold certificates, U.S. currency? You can't have both, and there's no other way out. Believe this and act accordingly. Before the day's over, I'll find out where you stand. I am doing a solo, so figure on meeting the terms of Mr. Fox or else. Signed, Fate. The letter included a heartbreaking postscript in Marion's hand, which read, Please, Daddy, I want to come home this morning. This is your last chance. Be sure and come by yourself, or you won't see me again. Over subsequent communications, an exchange was planned for the next evening at 10th and Gramercy in Los Angeles. Parker, who unbeknownst to him had been followed by police, arrived at the agreed-upon time, the requested money in his pocket but the kidnapper never showed up. Marion remained missing. On Saturday, December 17, 1927, the story exploded in the L.A. press. Descriptions of Marion, the stranger, and the dark coupe he had driven were everywhere. The Los Angeles Times reported breathlessly, Search continues for Marion Parker, 12 years of age, kidnapped Thursday from the Mount Vernon Junior High School by a criminal for whom hundreds of peace officers are conducting one of the greatest manhunts in the history of Southern California. Officers in all towns and cities of Southern California have centered their attention on the strange case. All arms of the law are cooperating in the tremendous manhunt. That morning... Parker received another letter, this time signed by Fate Fox. The fox was furious, 
having spotted the cops staking out the drop-off. He would give Parker one last chance, warning, I will be two billion times as cautious, as clever, and as deadly from now on. You have brought this on yourself and deserve it and worse. The worst was definitely coming. A second meeting was arranged over the phone, this time at Fifth and Manhattan Place. After the exchange of ransom money, the kidnapper fled from the scene, pushing a bundle out the passenger side door. Parker went to investigate, desperately hoping to find his daughter alive. I followed up to where he had stopped there, looking for her, and I expected she would be lying on the parkway, Parker later said. I couldn't see anything at all, and then I saw some kind of bundle of trash in the gutter, which upon closer view, I saw was my girl. I could see her white face, and I stopped and picked her up. The body was not complete. The discovery of Marion's mutilated body wasn't the end of the saga. On December 18th, subsequent body parts, including her legs wrapped in newspaper, were found scattered in Elysian Park. The tale became a national horror story and sent Angelinos into an understandable panic. Fortuitously, Marion's pitiful remains would help lead to her killer. The coroner found a towel stuffed in her abdomen marked Bellevue Arms, a new apartment building, which is today known as the Brownstone Lofts, and still an apartment complex near Elysian Park. This and other clues led police to settle on a suspect, a 19-year-old baby-faced man from Kansas City named William Edward Hickman. Since November, Hickman, using an alias, had been renting room 315 at the newly opened Bellevue Arms. Despite looking more like a future leading man than a villain, Hickman was a sociopath of the First Order, with a string of crimes already under his young belt. Hickman was raised in Arkansas and Kansas, by a family plagued by mental illness and instability. The fatherless boy was one of the top students in his high school class, with many friends and mentors. He was even voted Best Boy Orator, and seemed to be college-bound. But around the time of his senior year, all this abruptly changed. In 1926, Hickman and a 16-year-old named Welby Hunt came to Alhambra, a city just west of L.A. proper, to live with Hunt's grandparents. They kicked off a spree of robberies, which would culminate with the Christmas Eve murder of a druggist named Clarence Ivy Toms. They may also have been responsible for the suspicious suicide of Hunt's grandfather. They were not caught, and Hickman soon began working as a page at First National Bank. But he was soon caught stealing money from the bank, convicted, and sent home to Kansas with his mother, Eva. Hickman did not stay in Kansas for long. He went on another crime spree, holding up stores and carjacking unsuspecting passengers all over the Midwest. By November 1926, he was back in Los Angeles, and only a month later... Marion Parker was dead. 
Hickman was formally charged with the kidnapping of Marion on Tuesday, December 20th, but he was nowhere to be found. When contacted, his mother Eva defended him, stating, It's a terrible mistake. This crime is the work of a great fiend. My boy is a good, clean boy. I'll never believe it until I hear it from his own lips. But authorities knew better. The West Coast went on lockdown. Traffic stops were conducted up and down the coast, and Hickman's photos and physical description were plastered on the front page of every paper. The serial numbers of the gold certificates he had gotten from Parker were read out over the radio and sent to local stores. A $60,000 reward was offered for his capture. If you were a good-looking man with a mop of wavy black hair, you were in trouble. Many men were arrested multiple times. A man named Michael O'Neill was held five times, another seven, and one felt so harassed that he hanged himself when he was taken to jail. According to the LA Times, a near riot occurred in front of the police station yesterday when it was reported that Hickman had been arrested. The report traveled like wildfire through the downtown section, and in a few minutes, hundreds jammed in front of the headquarters, eager to catch a glimpse of the man accused of the horrible deed. The crowd was dispersed when it was announced Hickman had not been caught. No, Hickman had not been caught. He was on the run in a stolen coop. But his luck ran out on Thursday, December 22nd, in Seattle, when he stupidly used one of the gold certificates to purchase a coat and other cold-weather accoutrements. The suspicious salesman at the store matched the certificate's serial number with one that had been read on the radio. Police finally arrested Hickman outside Pendleton, Oregon, after a short chase. When confronted with his real name, Hickman reportedly shrugged and said, I guess it's all over. Parents all over America breathed a sigh of relief. When reached for comment, Perry Parker summed up his feelings in three short words. I am thankful. From the moment of his arrest, the public clamored to see the baby-faced killer. He was paraded in front of spectators at the Pendleton Jail and interviewed by countless reporters. Hickman couldn't keep his mouth shut and seemed to love to bask in the spotlight. On December 27, 1927, Hickman, District Attorney Keyes, and other major law enforcement officers boarded a special train to Los Angeles. Hickman gave a detailed confession. He said he had planned the kidnapping simply as a way to get $1,500 so he could enroll in college in the fall. Hickman explained how he had come to know of Marion when he was working at the bank. According to Hickman, Marion was often with her father, who would, quote, take her down and buy her lunch and prayed her around the bank like she was a big man. He had nothing personally against Parker, and he hadn't planned on killing Marion. In fact, he liked her. He explained that he had strangled her in his apartment at the Bellevue Arms on December 17th, 
because he was afraid she would make a noise. Hickman had then cut her up in his bathtub so he could dispose of her. He had sewn her eyes open so he could still get the ransom money. There's something ghastly about the dead eye, Hickman blabbed chillingly. It is even more penetrating than a live eye. The most hardened officials were deeply unnerved by Hickman. Even seasoned reporters were chilled by the teenage killer. A reporter at the Times recalled an eerie scene on the train. At one of the mountain stations, he gazed through the window at an assembled crowd. He waved at a little toe-headed girl on the platform. The wave and sneering smile affected the child, and she ran hastily to her mother a few steps away. In jail, Hickman realized the reality of his situation. He occasionally attempted to play crazy and would then just as quickly act perfectly rational. He wrote a rambling tract called Solution of Crime, which essentially tried to con the state into sparing his life for the good of humanity. At his trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, the first person in California to use this newly sanctioned defense. He claimed that Providence had forced him to kill Marion. It didn't work. Hickman was sentenced to hang and sent to San Quentin. In a subsequent trial, he and Welby Hunt were also convicted of the murder of Clarence Ivy Toms. He converted to Catholicism and continued his creepy ways, writing letters to media outlets around the country. Right before he was hanged, he told a prison guard the real reason he had killed Marion. I got tired of finding her in the room where I kept her while I was trying to get the ransom money. It got so that the sight of her face drove me into a frenzy, and I began figuring out that I was a fool to be annoyed. I was a scoffer at God, I guess. Talk about bad judgment. Why, instead of kidnapping and killing her, I could have robbed a bank, got ten times that much money, and would have suffered far less serious consequences when captured. Hickman, with his movie star-lighted looks and heart of blank darkness, was executed on October 19, 1928. There would be more famous kidnappings to come, including the Lindbergh baby case, but Marion's haunting story stayed in the public imagination and became part of pop culture, with a variation of the crime featuring centrally into HBO's recent reimagining of Perry Mason. A popular folk song of the time would be sung for years after she died. One version ended with the following lines. There is a great commandment that says thou shalt not kill, and those who do not heed it, their cup of sorrow fill. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly L.A. This episode is based on an article I wrote that originally appeared on KCET. Check it out. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me on Twitter at H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA at Underbelly LA. We're also on Facebook. Just search Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. 
And you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Join us next week when we delve into more murder, mayhem, shade, and sunshine in the city of angels. A Table Cakes production.